Well, good morning. Temptation. Yeah. I've been kind of wrestling with this one. And uh, it was so hot this morning, I actually had to take my collared shirt off <laughs> as I was preparing, literally. Um, but, man, there's a lot in the Bible about temptation. And there's a lot that we can learn. And so this morning when we jump in, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of James. And we're going to be talking about how do we fight temptation? How do we fight temptation? And right before we jump in, let's start with what is temptation? And I have a little photo here. It's a photo from Family Guy, and I'm not promoting Family Guy, but this is what it says. Temptation. Do you really want to spend the rest of your life wondering why not just push the red button? You know, as a young person, I know exactly what he's saying. He's appealing. There's things you're like, I wonder what would happen if I went a little further. If I, if I just took a little peek. You know, if I just, you know, entertained that thought a little bit more. You know, rock star Mick Jagger says this. It's all right to let yourself go as long as you can get yourself back. Really? But doesn't it sound so playful, so appealing, you know, flirtatious? It's actually, you know, temptation is kind of the motto for selling chocolate and perfume. You know, the slogans are like, can you resist? Do you dare? You know, forever share that fantasy. You know, it just lures you in. You're like, yeah. Someone's shaking their head. <laughs> but the point is, is that it promises something that it actually can't deliver. And that's exactly what sin does. It promises us something. It gets you close. And it feels good in the moment. And then it latches on and destroys you. You know, I was listening to a radio personality. His name is Paul Hart, Harvey, and he talks about how northern indigenous people killed wolves back in the day. I don't know if they still do this. But it's a bit of a gruesome illustration. They would take a sharp knife. They would dip it in animal's blood. They would freeze it. They would dip it again. Then they would freeze it. And they would continually do this and create a blood popsicle. Then they would stick this knife out in the cold. And it would just drive the wolves crazy. The scent of blood. And it would draw them in. And they would start licking this popsicle. And they would enjoy it. And they would keep licking. But as the ice wore down, the blade becomes exposed. And it's gruesome. It starts to cut the wolf's tongue, and they start to bleed to death, and they start to feed on their own blood. And then they would find the wolf dead in the morning. But isn't that exactly like sin? It throws us into this frenzy. We just kind of get a little bit. And a little bit more, and a little bit more, until we are so far gone that it actually destroys us. 
And James tells us the exact same thing. The problem isn't temptation. The problem isn't the sharp knife. The problem is, is that we give in. And we actually believe that sin is going to help us. That it is going to help us move forward in life. We, we think it's going to help us make, make us feel better and satisfy us. And the problem is, is that we take the bait. And we get sucked in. And destroyed. So the question is, how do we get to the point of falling into sin? How do we get to the point where we take the bait? Well, James actually tells us. And right at the beginning of the book, James tells us to have pure joy in trials. Then he moves to, but be careful. In trials, there's going to be temptations. So let's read this again. Turn with me in your Bibles on your devices to James 1, verse 13. This is what it says. Let no one say when he or she is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his or her own desire. Now, the Greek word there for tempted means that we're being tested constantly. But there's a difference between being tested by trials and hardships, you know, those things that come into our life that are not necessarily because of our own sin, but there's also tests and temptations that are connected to sin, drawing us in. And James is saying, temptation doesn't actually come from God. Temptation comes with, within. It's our own broken desires. When we follow our fleshly desires, it leads us down a dark path. He's saying that James wants us to understand that mixed in the middle of life, as we're going through trials, oh, there's also going to be temptations. You know, when we experience financial difficulty, we can actually blame God for our difficulties. Or we can take a little bit more for ourselves. Or we can question, you know, God when there's the death of a loved one. God doesn't love me. And we can become apathetic. We can push God away. Or we might be tempted to question God's plans when we don't understand them. Or we can actually have a disagreement with someone in the church and be tempted to leave. Or be tempted to break relationship. Rather than forgive and do the hard thing and work through it. James is saying, as we're going through trials and the hard things of life, oh, be careful. You are going to be tempted to take the shortcut. You are going to be tempted to push God away. You are going to be tempted to rely on yourself and your own desires. And your own desires are going to lead you down a dark path, and it's going to hurt. So 
So James says, well, where does temptation come from? Temptation comes from entertaining our own desires. It comes from entertaining our own desires. In verse 14, he says this, but each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own sinful desires. To be lured or enticed means to be drawn away, dragged away, or carried away by sin. It's this longing to satisfy our flesh. It's living so that we can feel good in the moment. And James is talking about those inner desires in a negative sense. You know, it could be lust. Could be that desire for more and gambling it all away. It could be that feeling you get when you're on the bottle or on the drug. It could be gluttony. Whatever that thing that kind of pulls you in. We all have something that lures us and entices us. We're like, oh, just want a little bit more. A little bit more. And it gets you. And James is saying that our own misguided desires will lure you away. It's this appeal, this sales pitch that every perfume and cologne commercial has. There's a desire. You'll be better off. Come on, come, come. But then he says, entertaining our desires actually leads to sin. James says in verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. He's saying that our sinful desires, when entertained, actually give birth. And the Bible says it doesn't just start with, oh, there's a temptation, but it actually starts right here. It starts with our thinking. When we think we need that thing, or we think, again, that we're better off. It starts with, the des- this, with this desire. And when this desire is acted upon, sin multiplies. It grows. And this happens every time we sexualize men and women. It happens every time that we gossip about someone. It happens when we push God away. It gives birth to sin. And then James says, fully grown sin leads to spiritual death. See the pattern? What does James mean by fully grown? He means that we are hooked, that we are being controlled by sin. It means that we're walking down a path that is leading to destruction And we're going willfully, one step at a time, because we're hooked. And this is exactly how Satan destroys lives. This is exactly why pastors included can walk away from their faith. It's because they flirted with sin. They've entertained their own desires. 
And it drew them further and further and further away from what God wanted. And here's honestly the truth that it can happen to you. It might actually be happening to you. There's a book called Marriage Undercover, and I read it about 10 years ago. And man, there's an amazing story here. And Bob and Audrey Miser were known for their 100 Huntley Street TV ministry. And they had this fruitful ministry. They had three beautiful children. You know, they had this perfect marriage. (laughs) But then Audrey unexpectedly started having an affair. This is what she said. She said her own confidence and her own immunity was the very thing that left her completely vulnerable to infection. She says, my pride in having this exceptional marriage blinded my perception. It all began so gradual. And once the crack opened, the hook was in. Sin drew me slowly but surely off the true path, onto this false trail of lies and self-deception. She says, in my own secret world, I was so busy staring at the billboard that screamed pleasure and freedom that I actually ignored the warning signs until it was too late. Almost before I knew what I was doing, I committed the sin of idolatry. She says, I thought I knew my enemy. But then yet I was still overtaken. I was brought down and I was beaten to the core. You know, as they went through the process and the pain that it caused her husband and her family, she said it, It was like being cut by a thousand knives trying to work through it. She said slowly she had to open her eyes to evaluate the damage. And she realized she couldn't see clearly. She said her and her husband were like two people drowning in a lake, both needing rescue. Neither of them able to help the other. And she said, in her pain and terror and despair, our hearts cried for help. What all started with a playful yes, but ended with deep wounds. Temptation is always seductive. Temptation is always seductive. And if we're not careful, it's going to pull you in. And you're going to get stuck in the current. And this is exactly how sin works. It starts with a desire. And when we entertain that sinful desire, it leads to sin. And that sin grows. And that sin overtakes us. And it beats us down. And it wounds us. And it causes destruction. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. This is what he says. Sin is a thief. It will rob your soul of its life. It will rob God of his glory. Sin is a murderer. It stabbed our father Adam. It slew our purity. Sin is a traitor. It rebels against the king of heaven 
end earth. So here's the question. It's a question that we don't actually want to answer. The question is this. What sin are you and I flirting with? Playing with? And convinced that you can always just pull yourself back. Just like Mick Jagger. What sin is lurking around the corner in your life, waiting to hook you, waiting to destroy you? Or what sin is actually growing in your life, multiplying? And you may not even recognize the damage yet, but one day you will. So next, how do we actually fight temptation? How do we fight temptation? So when it's coming around the corner, we are ready to fight back. I just want to kind of divert from James to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew. And in Matthew, you see Jesus fighting temptation. He fights three different temptations. And the first temptation is this fleshly desire in a different context. So look with me at Matthew 4, verses 3 to 4. This is what it says. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he, as in Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter, Satan, came, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what is actually going on here? Well, Satan is actually appealing to the lust of the, f- the flesh. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. He's craving food. And Satan knows that. And he comes in. He's like, hey, Jesus. Here's a little food so you can break your fast. Come on, Jesus. Just, just a little bit. And Satan is playing to his hunger, to his desire for food. Even though it's not wrong to eat. But the point is, is Jesus is out there to connect with God. So he's fasting and he's praying. And Satan's there to disrupt him. What does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He says this, man shall not live by bread alone. Satan tries again. Temptation number two, which I'm going to call power. In verse five, it says this. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus again responds with scripture and says this, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But actually, if you really look at the text, Satan is actually manipulating and twisting truth. He quotes scripture and spins it on Jesus to try to get him to take the bait. He tells him a half-truth. 
He tells Jesus to throw himself down. Jesus, show your power. Are you really strong enough? Are you really who you say you are? It's kind of like playground bullying. (laughs) You know, flex your muscles, Jesus. And Satan tries to stroke Jesus' ego. And Satan's doing this chameleon act. He's kind of like flirting here, Jesus. Here's the truth. Here's a piece of it. But he's actually trying to lead him to death. And some scholars are saying this. They're saying Satan's suggesting that Jesus take a shortcut. The shortcut is out of suffering so that Jesus would throw himself down, take the easy way out, end his life so that he wouldn't have to continue suffering. I think it's easy to think, how many times do we take the shortcut? How many times do we take the the easy way out rather than the difficult path that God has called us? And ultimately, Satan knows that he's trying to divert Jesus and his flesh saying, hey, show me your power. And then Jesus again responds with scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 16, he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Then he tries again. Temptation number three, wealth. And at verse 80 says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only serve him. Now here's the point, that Satan will appeal to all our desires, including materialism, including riches. And Satan takes Jesus to the high mountaintops and says, hey, this will all be yours if you worship me. I think offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world is kind of ironic (laughs) when he already owns all of it. But I think the question for all of us is, what would your price be? What if Satan offered you more than what you have? But here's what Jesus does. Again, he uses the word of God as an offensive weapon. Three times Satan tempts him. And three times Jesus answers him with the word of God. And the point is, is when we use truth to fight Satan, what happens? In verse 11, it tells us, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The devil left him. The point is, is that Satan will try to attack your desires, 
He will try to get you to take the bait. He will try one thing, then another thing, and another thing. And when he smells weakness, he will engage you. He will use everything that he can to draw you away from what is good and what is holy. He wants to draw you away from God and his word. And the truth is, is that temptations are going to be dangling in front of us all over the place. I'm going to bring up an illustration that I had at youth group many years ago, and Megan's going to bring it up just to give you a visual. But I think the truth is, is that we're being assaulted by all kinds of images, by all kinds of things in our life every single day, and we may not actually be ready. And these temptations come in many forms, like social media. You'll be scrolling and something will hook you. You'll be watching Netflix and something will hook you. You'll be looking in the mirror and something will come inside your head and saying, ah, I'm not good enough. I need to be better. I need to look better. You look at your bank account and you will be assaulted by like, ah, oh, I don't have enough. And you may be willing to compromise to get more. You may be driving down the street and you may see a beautiful man or a woman and you may be assaulted. And the question that we all need to ask is, how do we guard ourselves from these temptations? What are we doing to prepare? Because the point is, is they're going to be in our life constantly. You can't avoid them. I love what David says, even though he's a man who actually gave in to temptation. But this is what he says in Psalm 119, maybe after he learned the lesson. He says this, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we often kind of make excuses like, well, you know, I, I'm not strong enough. Just a little bit is okay. A little bit of flirting, a little bit of entertaining. I love what 1 Corinthians says. Verse 13, it says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, we don't have an excuse that we can actually find victory in fighting sin and temptation. That God has given us all the tools that we need. We just need to actually put them into practice. And the more we learn to use the resources that God has given us, the more that we can grow in our ability to resist temptation. And again, the Lord Jesus defeated Satan because he knew the word of God. And he knew how to use it. And the question is, do you know scripture? 
Do you know it in such a way that it comes to your head when something around the corner is right in your face? You're like, ah. Do you know what verse to recite or what to say out loud? Does the word of God come to you just like the lyrics of your favorite song? That's how you fight temptation. It's not relying on you and your strong-willed power. It's arming yourselves with scripture, with his words, with his resources. So lastly, don't be deceived by trials. Don't be deceived by trials. Back in James, James 1, verse 16 to 18 says this. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know, the reason James said this is, again, we started with trials, temptations. And he points us back to truth, and he reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. That deception actually comes from Satan himself. Well, what is deception? Or what does it mean to be deceived? It's actually believing a lie. It's believing this false statement made with this deliberate intent to kind of get you off track. This unintentional truth or falsehood that leads you astray. And Satan is a master at it. And Satan is the one who births lies. And when you act on or listen to his lies, you're actually doing the work of the devil. You're letting him get a stronghold in your life. And when we believe a lie, it actually shapes us. It manipulates us. It brainwashes us. And when we believe it, we start to act on it. And James is saying that believers who are going through trials are especially vulnerable to Satan's lies. He's saying to avoid deception and trials, affirm God's goodness. To avoid deception, affirm God's goodness. So rather than being deceived or blame God for all your problems, he's saying acknowledge the truth. Acknowledge that God is good. Acknowledge that God is not the one tempting you. God is the author of what is good. And he gives you grace. He gives you salvation. It's the tempter that is deceiving you. In other words, don't believe that God doesn't care. Don't believe that you are alone. Don't believe that God is not for you. And don't believe that when you're encountering the ugliness of sin, that God is not good. He is good. He's good even if you don't understand the absolute reason for why. He is good even if you fall into sin. He is good 
when other people in your life make big mistakes. He is good. And I think the point is, is that we need to pray and read scripture and worship until we believe God is good. And when we struggle, when we choose disobedience over obedience, that means we don't believe God is good. We don't believe God is for us. So James is saying, worship until your mind and your heart can know every good and perfect gift is from above. In other words, forgive, let go, practice obedience because he is good to you. He is good to you. And then James says, to avoid deception and trials, recognize where true life comes from. In verse 17, he says, it comes down from the father of lights. And James is saying that God is the father of lights, that he gives us this gift of spiritual life, this new birth, this new life. He makes you alive in Christ. And it's this new spiritual life that is given to all believers when we say yes to God. It's hearing and responding to what Jesus did on the cross. And God is the one who gives us life when we say yes to him. And it's not just in words, but it's actually in our actions. That there's a correlation between what we're saying and what we're doing James is saying, don't be deceived. Life doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from try harder. It doesn't come from just attending church. It comes from actually transformation because God is at work in your heart and you are saying no to sin and yes to God. This is why Paul says true life comes when you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Oh, catch the living part? That means, again, we're alive in Christ. We're doing something. We're active. We're part of what God is doing. But the sacrifice part, not so good at. You mean I need to give up things to serve Christ? You mean my life should look differently? This is why Paul says in Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercy, do you see God's mercy? Do you see what he's done? In view of that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, this is the remedy to sin. This is how you don't become deceived in the hardships of life. It's choosing to live out your faith in a sacrificial way, even when it's hard. In other words, following Christ does hurt. It changes you. And it's choosing to operate in truth rather than what our flesh wants. That's what the sacrifice is.
The problem with a living sacrifice is we always want to crawl off the altar. (laughs) Back to our sin. Back to our temptation. Back to easy. But fighting temptation actually is an act of worship. Saying no to sin is our worship. Putting death to everything that dishonors Christ is an act of worship. Saying yes to Christ is an act of worship. And to avoid deception, we need to worship him. I don't know if you've been following some of the revival that's been starting in the States right now. But it gave me a pause to really think, what are the kind of the ingredients of a revival? You know, the ingredients of a revival is a work of the Spirit. That means God is working. It's something that we can't create. But the second component is repentance. Where the masses start to turn away from their sin and turn back to God. I don't know if you've heard, but at Asbury University, there's been a chapel service with thousands that has been going for a week and a half. It's going all throughout the night. The people are now coming from all over the world and experiencing God. They're worshiping. People are coming to faith. And it started in this university. You know, Jonathan Edwards, who experienced a revival in his church, was was asked, you know, what is the, you know, the fruit of a true revival? How do you actually know this is from God? It's not just crowd dynamics. It's not just individual hysteria. I really liked his answer. This is what he said. It's truly a work of God when there's a positive change in the quality of discipleship that's happening. When people start to demonstrate that they actually love God and others more. It's a true revival when people are hungry for the word of God again. When people are getting back to what it means to be obedient. And as a result, we start to serve one another better. That's the fruit of a true revival. So how do we fight temptation? We fight temptation by experiencing God. And when we've experienced God, we can't help but say no to sin. Because we recognize Jesus is better and there's no other way to live. And once we've tasted his presence, you don't want anything else. Timothy Keller says this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we've ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we've ever dared to hope. And this is why we can sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. 
saved a wrench, a sinner like me. This is why we can sing, my chains are gone, I've been set free. This is why we can celebrate. And this is why we always talk about Jesus. Because it's in Christ that you find life. It's in Christ and experiencing him that you can fight sin and have victory. And when you've deeply experienced his good grace and you understand how ugly sin is, once you've experienced his presence, nothing else really matters. You start to realize that sin is a distraction. You start to realize that sin causes brokenness. You start to realize that sin disconnects you from God and others. And it's through Christ and his word that he changes our desires. And if our desires are changed, our life changes. I'm going to call the worship team up. And the prayer teams. I'm going to leave you with this question. What step is God calling you to take to fight temptation in your life? What step is God calling you to take to fight temptation in your life? And if you don't know Christ, if you have not experienced that transformation that I'm talking about, man, I would love to pray with you. I would love to introduce you to Jesus. Please come and talk to me after. But church... You don't have to live in bondage. You don't have to live trapped. You don't have to live that life that there's freedom for you. There's freedom this morning as you repent, as you turn away from your sin and ask God to change you, to change your desires. You can live alive in Christ today. So please join me in prayer if that's you. Just talk to God right now. Bow your head. Close your eyes. God, thank you that you provided a way out. That as James says, temptation is not from you. That you are good. You are the giver of good gifts. So God, this morning I admit that I am a sinner, that I need your grace. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. This morning, I surrender my life to you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. I'm just going to give you a moment between you and God. Again, what step is God calling you to take? And then we're going to sing amazing grace.